after this Sunday on ASMR, like, what is he talking about? Uh, kid has been hard this week, so I was up really late last night. So here we go. You ready? Yes. All right. That wasn't that funny? Y'all were just looking at me like I'm crazy. Sorry about that. All right. Um, so a couple of things uh, before we kind of dive into the text that I just want to let you guys know about uh, that I'm excited about, about what uh, the Lord is doing kind of in the midst of our body and some of the things that he has been moving just kind of within this church as a whole. So uh, one, God keeps using uh, this church to draw people to himself. And so even last week uh, during service, we had two people that profess faith in Christ for the first time, which is, yeah, super encouraging. Um, even more, we heard during the week of different people uh, in their neighborhoods and at their uh, office uh, places of work and at school where people were having spiritual conversations. Uh, another person got led to the Lord and there's more just really cool conversations. So like this is the most important thing, right? Like, like that is why we exist to push back the darkness and God is doing that uh, in the midst of our body. And so man, praise the Lord for that. Amen. Um, we also have a ton of other really just cool things happening. Uh, we had three people in our baptism class today uh, that are ready to get baptized uh, even next week. And if you would like to get baptized, man, put that on your card. We would love to celebrate with you next Sunday. Um, but that's really cool. Uh, we have more people in our church that I know uh, need to get baptized. <clears throat> um, and yeah, God is just doing a good work there. Uh, we had 14 people in our first steps class last week uh, with 13 of them that wanted to jump immediately into service and 11 of them that are planning on being covenant members uh, in September when we do that class. And I know there are a lot of other people that are wanting to jump into membership. So that's huge. Uh, we had 20 people start and finish the discipleship class. And so that's really, really huge. Uh, people that are ready to pour into others, to be poured into, to really multiply in a lot of ways. Uh, in the past uh, month plus, we've had over 25 kids in the children's uh, ministry, despite only having two classes for the past month. And so it's been like Hurricane Katrina in there, all right? And for some reason, parents keep bringing their kids around. That's awesome, all right? And uh, we just keep adding into that. And a lot of cool things happening in the fall, and I can go on and on. But what I'm trying to show is that, man, God is doing a really good work uh, in and through our church in a lot of ways. And I pray that he uses this church to really draw you to himself or uh, to encourage the bride, us, the bride of Christ, that he would build us up in love and kind of build us up in faith. So, man, family, look, keep pressing, okay? Keep pressing. God is doing a really, really good work, um, and I pray you'd be encouraged in the midst of that. Uh, I believe that he has beautiful things for each of us here, uh, and really to be able to see his glory and to display his glory uh, to others. And so keep pressing in, family. Keep pressing in. Um, so today, we're going to cover a huge portion of scripture, all right? In fact, this is the most text that we've ever covered in one Sunday, and we're actually going to still have the same length of sermon that we normally have, all right? Some of y'all are like, well, that was way too hard of a laugh, whoever that was. Uh, some of y'all are like, man, he's really sleep deprived, all right? But uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to stick really, really close to my notes today, okay? So instead of kind of running around Tori like you're used to, I want to stick close because instead of reading all four chapters, we're going to summarize a lot of it. Uh, but the story really is one whole story as a whole. And so we wanted to be faithful with scripture and not chop it up nine times, but really get the whole narrative of what's happening here with Joseph and his brothers. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Genesis 42 is where we'll be. Uh, we will uh, camp from 42 to 45 today and pretty much be there. If you don't have a Bible, there's some under every second and third chair. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, take and keep that. That's our gift to you. We want you to have the word to read it during the week. You can also follow along on your smartphone. 
If you have the Uversion app underneath events, type in the well Austin. You can follow along that way. You can also take this link and put it right into your browser, and you can follow along that way. All the scripture will be on there, uh, places for notes, things like that. We say this every week because we mean it. We want your eyes on the word. We want you to see we're not making this up. Uh, we really think that this is the word of God, that he communicates his passion, his love, the intimacy that he desires to have with us through the scriptures. And so we want our eyes on the scriptures. Uh, honestly, I would rather have you looking at the word and God speak to you through the word than even through me because this is the very word of God, right? And we want to dive into this and know this intimately and deeply. So um, we are going to walk through all this, all right? Let's not front. I'm probably still going to run around a little bit and run over a little bit, but we'll try our hardest, okay? Um, so we're rounding second base with our Joseph uh, sermon series, and this narrative is really hitting a critical point today. So if you've been with us for a while, we've been walking through Genesis, and really ever since Jacob, there's been this family drama that's been happening in really the family of God, the, the covenant people of God, if you will, the, the Old Testament church even, to use that metaphor and that language. And so do uh, you see Jacob tricking uh, his dad, Isaac, to receive a blessing. We see Jacob tricking Esau to receive uh, an inheritance, a blessing. We see Laban tricking uh, Jacob, who was his uncle and nephew relationship. We see Reuben, Levi, and Simeon all kind of harming their father. Father Jacob and deceiving him in different ways. We see the brothers sell Joseph into slavery and, and kind of trick or harm their brother there. We see Judah kind of bail on his family. And so God sure enough uses some messed up people to bring salvation to the world, doesn't he? Yeah, my life is a testimony to that very fact, right? Like God will use the most twisted and messed up situation to really draw forth the beauty of the gospel as we've been seeing throughout all of this family chaos and all of this drama. So Joseph is sold into slavery, if we remember. And then Judah in chapter 38, he leaves his family and he kind of says, forget this, I'm done with the people of God. He kind of leaves the church to use that analogy, that metaphor, and he kind of goes and lives his own life. But we actually, see God do a very gracious work in his life and draw Judah back into the family, but not just back into the fold, but even a leader of the family, which we'll get to look at a lot today. Joseph, meanwhile, though, in the whole process of Judah's story, gets sold into slavery, and then he kind of ends up stepping up the ladder some and getting a pretty important position with Potiphar and the manager of his household, but then he's lied about. He's thrown into a dungeon. He's left there for several years. He interprets this man's dream. He says, hey, just remember me when you leave and the text clearly says the man forgot about him, right? So he leaves him in the dungeon for a while and Joseph is in this misery, in this agony, really suffering. However... God in his sovereignty gave Pharaoh a dream as well. And Joseph came and he interpreted Pharaoh's dream for him. And he told Pharaoh, this is what your dream means, that there's going to be a famine in the land of Egypt. And the famine is going to be so bad that if you do not prep for it in these seven years of plenty, then the seven years of famine and famish will utterly decimate not just your country, but everyone around us, which his own household was included in that. Israel was just outside of Egypt. And so that's where we pick up this week in chapter 40. Sure enough, the famine is so bad that it's destroying everything around them. And so nobody else prepped for it except for Egypt because Joseph had this uh, uh, divine insight as to what God was going to do. So everybody was coming to Egypt to get food and grain and just to kind of stay alive. And so Jacob tells his 11 sons to go down to Egypt and to buy grain for the family to survive. However, Jacob, Jacob, uh, Jacob keeps Benjamin with him, his new favorite. 
If you remember, Joseph, or I keep saying Joseph, Jacob, J names are going to trip me up today. Jacob had four wives, okay? And with those wives, he had 12 different children. Joseph was the child of Rachel, his favorite wife, as was Benjamin. So Jacob thinks that Joseph is dead. And so now Benjamin is his new favorite. It's the new person that he's bestowing blessing upon. So he sends out the 11 sons, but then he keeps Benjamin back just in case the other ones die. He needs at least one son to pass this blessing this inheritance to. So uh, he keeps Benjamin back, and that's where we pick up. Genesis chapter 42, the brothers arrive in Egypt in verse 7. It says, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he dreamed of them, And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the lamb. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. So several important things here that we jump off. Firstly, that word recognized, if you see there, is repeated multiple times in those first two verses. It's actually the exact same word that's used in chapter 37 when the brothers go over to Jacob and they say, do you recognize this robe or this coat of many colors? And so they use the exact same word, only time that word's used in Genesis. And so the author's clearly trying to get our attention here that Joseph is now actually in the same position that his brothers were in 20 years prior where he is the one that is sovereign. He is the one that is in control. He is the one that can inflict damage and punishment. And it says that he recognizes them, but they do not recognize him. And so there's all of this uh, power and authority to be able to punish if he desires. The brothers are really in a lot of ways at Joseph's mercy, and they really can't do anything about it, much like Joseph was in chapter 37. We keep saying this throughout, but this whole story is like a, a huge family soap opera. And if that's the case, if this is the soap opera of the gospel, then this is the climax right here. The brothers come and they are confronted with all of their sin that they're bringing along with Joseph, who is this powerful man at the time. As a quick side note, I always thought, how in the world did the brothers not recognize Joseph, right? Like, how do you not recognize your own brother? And so if your mind works like mine, let me help you out a little bit, okay? First of all, he was 17 when he was sold into slavery. He's now almost 40, right? A 17-year-old, a 40-year-old look very, very, very different, okay? Second of all, the Jews, they wore facial hair all the time, long hair, long beards, but the Egyptians thought that hair uh, was like almost a sign of wickedness, so they would completely uh, shave bald head, bald face, everything. If you've ever seen any movies with Egyptian pharaohs, they're always clean shaven, right? That's why, because they thought that was uh, better. So he probably had all this uh, facial hair. In fact, the text tells us at 17, he was a man with a full-grown beard, so he was on that grown man status, even at 17, right? And then he cleaned it all off when he's there in Egypt. And so uh, he spoke Egyptian to them through an interpreter, it says later in this. And so he's actually speaking Egyptian, so they may not recognize him. He was wearing the garments of a governor. He had an Egyptian name, it says. And then not to mention, they thought this dude was dead, right? Like they, they literally thought he was dead. So why would they be looking for him in that way? And so all of these things kind of line up to, they don't really recognize who Joseph is. And tangents like that is how a short sermon turns long, all right? If I do it again, somebody just yell out, help the Lord, and I'll get back on, okay? 
So Joseph says they're spies. They say, no, 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 we're not spies. We're, we're honest men. We're from one family. And what they're saying there is, is, hey, why would we send every single person of the family to come spy the land in case we get caught and killed? Like if we were actually spies, we would just send one or two people, not our whole family. However, Joseph knows their family. So he actually knows that this isn't the full truth because one of the brothers is missing. And so he tells them, no, 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 you're spies. And I love, they say, no, we are honest men, all right? Like they're being politicians right there, okay? Now, many people have tried to figure out Joseph's uh, 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 heart behind all of this. Why does it say he spoke roughly to them? And as we'll see, why does he kind of put them through the ringer in some ways? And I think Gordon Winham, who's a commentator, he explains this the best. He says, Joseph's motives for treating his brothers harshly have been variously explained. Punishment, testing, teaching, dream fulfillment. Predictably enough, however, each line of explanation is wrong because all are right. By failing to explain Joseph's conduct explicitly, the narrator leaves the reader to surmise and fill the gap himself, and this allows the creation of a multi-dimensional image of Joseph. Now imagine how you'd be feeling here, okay? Like, I want you to think of the worst thing that anybody's ever done to you in your life, like sell you into slavery, right? That would be top of the list if that happened to you, right? So he is in this high position, not only a high position, he's actually the second most important person in the world right now because uh, uh, Egypt is the most powerful country. Pharaoh is number one, and it says that Joseph is the governor. He's the second in charge. So he is not just in a position of authority. He's in a position of really godhood because they saw their pharaohs as gods. He can execute judgment and everybody would not just say it's okay, they would worship him even for this. He's in this powerful, powerful position. They've never asked for forgiveness, right? There's, there's, there's an ability to just not kind of show mercy there. So what would you do at this point? And really, Joseph is probably kind of utterly conflicted in a lot of ways. Like there's probably part of him that wants to just be like off with their heads, right? But there's probably part of him because he's a godly man, scripture says, where the Holy Spirit may be kind of convicting him to, no, 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 give forgiveness or extend mercy or extend grace. And so he's probably combating back and forth in some way. And so we really don't know what's happening. Plus, it says he remembered the dream, it says. And in the dream, all the brothers were there and the father. And so the brothers and the father aren't here right now. And so is the dream only partially fulfilled or fully fulfilled? So Joseph probably has this whirlwind of emotions happening at this point. He's wrestling, right? How could I forgive them? Should I extend justice? Should I give mercy? And even think about this. If they're still the same scoundrels that sold him into slavery, then executing mercy may actually cause harm to him. Because if they're just as twisted and they're just as crooked as they were when they first sold him into slavery, then if he reveals himself and then forgives them, they may actually use this to their own benefit and to their own gain and maybe even hurt Joseph's position of influence upon which God has used him to be a blessing to the world. And so he has all these things that he's going on here, okay? He's probably so torn and it's probably tough. Here's what we do know is happening though. We can be assured through the text that three things are assuredly happening. For one, Joseph is... Uh, feeling extreme compassion and great, great, great emotions. In fact, if you look at these three verses I have up on the screen, in chapter 42, verse 24, he says, um, then he turned away from them and wept. 
in chapter 43, verse 30, when he sees them again, it says, Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered the chamber and wept there. And then in chapter 45, verse 2, it says, And he wept uh, aloud, so the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. So as you see, actually, as time goes on, his emotions are growing more and more raw. The first time he weeps, the second time he hurries up out of the room and weeps and closes the door because he's crying loud. The third time, all of Egypt hears it, right? Which is obviously kind of a metaphor, but he's wailing at this time. And so there is this desire to show compassion, to show forgiveness, to create reconciliation. He is mourning and weeping over his brothers. We see that this is an emotional man. This is not just a raw man that just wants to execute judgment or justice. And so this is a man that wants to make things right. However, we also see Joseph in the position of sovereign. He knows them, but they don't know him. And so Joseph actually uses this to test his brothers. And that's the second thing that we see, and we'll focus on this the longest today. But he puts his brothers through this series of tests to see if they're the same fools that sold them into slavery or if God has been working on their hearts as he clearly was working on Joseph's heart. Joseph has to see, is God interacting in their lives in a lot of ways? So he uses his position to put them through these tests. What you're going to see in these three tests is a wise, shrewd, discerning, clever man. And you'll realize why Pharaoh immediately elevated him to the second in position, because this is a very, very wise guy. So in chapter 42, he ends up enslaving all the brothers, and then he pulls out one of them, Simeon, and he says, Simeon has to stay. And you brothers, if you ever want food again, then you have to come back with your other brother, Benjamin. Now, he doesn't use his name, obviously, but they say that they have one more brother that is at home. So he says, if you want him, then you got to bring him back as well. And so he enslaves uh, uh, Simeon, and he says, bring my full biological brother back, right, is what he's saying in his heart. Now, in chapter 42, verse 25, we read this. So he sends them away. Simeon's enslaved. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And this was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? Test number one. It may not be obvious, but would they trade in their brother, Simeon, for food and money, just like they trade in their brother, Joseph, for food and money? He puts all the money back into their sack and actually puts them in the same position. But Joseph wasn't traded for this much money. He was traded for 20 pieces of silver. All of this money that 11 brothers would bring is a lot of money for food in the middle of a famine. You know, the whole uh, supply, demand, right? Supply is really, really, really low and demand is really, really high right now. So that jacks up prices. This is probably a lot of money. This is a wise guy. Do they have the same motivations? Will they just kind of ditch Simeon? In fact, Joseph was there when Simeon was kind of at odds with the family for slaughtering the whole uh, 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 town. Remember the story of Dinah? Simeon and Levi, they go, they slaughter everybody, and Jacob kind of shuns Simeon and Levi because of that. So he actually picks the brother that's probably not that accepted in the family. In other words, to trade him in wouldn't really be that big of a deal. 
in a lot of ways. And are they going to be willing to trade him in just to keep the money? He puts them in the same position that he was in 20 years prior. In fact, in verse 27, if you look, only one of them actually opened their bag. It says, now one man opened his bag. So they go home and they start telling Jacob this whole story, right? He knows we have another brother. Simeon's in jail. And in a lot of ways, Jacob may believe them because the brothers are heartbroken, the text says. They're, they're, they're crushed by this. They actually blame God in some ways, which why whenever we are put in a tough situation, we blame God, right? But that's a whole other story. Help him, Lord. Stay on this, okay? So they get home. Jacob probably believes them in some ways. But then it says that they all open up their sacks and they all pour it out. And the money is in each man's sack. And Jacob's probably looking like liar, liar, pants on fire, right? Jacob actually knows that they're kind of shady in and of itself. And he's seen them do multiple corrupt things. And so he probably thought they were lying. He actually probably thought that they sold Simeon into slavery to make this money and to bring food back. And they're just lying to him. And so they're put in a tough situation because they say, we have to bring Benjamin back. But Jacob is saying, I'm not sending my son with y'all. Right? And he never calls them son again in the rest of the scriptures until he blesses them, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks. He only calls uh, uh, the youngest his son now. He only uh, identifies with Benjamin, never again with the sons. We actually see some disharmony being created once again. However, instead of sell their brother or instead of act wickedly, what they actually do is they unify in some ways. They are broken. They are crushed. They do not want their brother to be in slavery. Rather than use this as a means for their own selfish gain like they did in the past, they are utterly broken over it, and they unify in a lot of ways. Because see, the prior brothers, they would be quick to just be like, hey, praise the Lord, right? God must be blessing us. But now all of a sudden, they're broken, and they know that it's wrong. So they run out of food, And they say that they can't go back without Benjamin. Jacob is kind of saying, no, you can't send him. So they're at this dilemma where Joseph and uh, Jacob are at odds with the brothers, right? But Judah actually steps up. If you remember from the Judah story, Judah kind of becomes the family leader. And if you look at chapter 43, verse 8 and 9, he says this. And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me. And we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge for his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Remember the transformation of Judah, the person who wanted nothing to do with the family or the household of God just a few weeks ago. Now he's so committed to the vision that God has given his father. He's so committed to the family of God that he's actually willing to offer himself up as a sacrifice if Benjamin does not return safely. So Judah not only steps into this sacrificial position, but actually the position of leader because he convinces his father to send Benjamin down with them, much like the greater Judah. Jesus would many years later offer himself for the salvation of others, right? So they go back down. Benjamin is with them. And we see some cool things in the middle of chapter 43, like uh, the guards that Joseph has been uh, kept and entrusted with, the, the guards that are now serving him, they actually also profess faith in the Lord. 
And that's pretty cool because Joseph is now using his position not just to physically bless people, but to spiritually bless people as well. In the fall, we're going to do a sermon series on work and the importance of work. And one of the importances is really to bless the world around us, to create, to cultivate, to, to bless the people of God just, just naturally, or really the, the world naturally with our gifts and our talents and the things that we do. But another reason that God has created work is for us to bless people spiritually as well. And we see Joseph doing both of these. He's literally feeding the world through his governmental wisdom, and he's also leading people to the Lord spiritually. And so we see this, and the, the servants come in and says, hey, the Lord, your Lord, right, our master's Lord, the Lord, he's the covenantal name, God has actually blessed you guys. And so they bring the brothers into the household, and they think, oh, my gosh, here we go. They're bringing us in. They're going to behead us. They know that we stole, and, and one of them, Reuben, starts kind of working the story. Like, let's, ju let's just tell them that, that we gave the money, and, and it was put back, and we, we brought all the money back and the money for this one. Like, we're not thieves. And the servant says, hey, don't worry. Your God has actually blessed you. He's brought you here on purpose. And then they bring them in to eat and enjoy a meal together, and we actually get our second test here. In Genesis chapter 43, verse 32, it says this. They served him. Joseph by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were given to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. Now, remember verse 32, because that's a really important verse that we're going to come back to later. So pocket that one. We'll pull it back out in a little bit. But do you see the test here, though? It's subtle, but Jake, or Joseph begins to also play favoritism. Because remember, the brothers sold Joseph because they hated him. Why? Because he was the favorite. Now he takes the next son who he knows is going to be Jacob's new favorite and he too begins to show favoritism to him and he gives him five times as much food as any of the other brothers. So will they complain? Will they be bitter? Will they kind of like take some of Benjamin's food and sneak it over to theirs, right? Or are they going to accept this gift that they have by grace because they did not deserve to be there in the first place? In fact, if they were truly spies, if they were truly shady, if they had truly stolen, even if they were just normal Hebrews, why are they being brought into this high position and given this feast in the midst of a famine? Why is this happening to them? This is grace. Will they accept grace freely or will they think, hold on, I'm the oldest. I deserve more than this person. And will they lean on works? Do you see what Joseph is doing here? He lines them up and even plays his hand a little bit. He lines them up from oldest to youngest. How does he know that? He's their brother, but they don't know, right? And so they just look at each other with amazement, it says. And then rather than being bitter or rather than complaining or rather than getting frustrated, it says that they actually all ate and they were merry, which that's a really polite way for Scripture to say they got drunk, all right? Hey, they were partying in this joint, okay? That's what was happening. That's what the text actually says, is that they got drunk. They were, they were celebrating together. There was no envy. There was no hostility. There was no, like, why is this happening? They had become people that recognized grace. We don't deserve to be here. We don't deserve to be in this high ruler's presence, and yet we are all eating, and so let's just enjoy this. Let's celebrate this together. They accepted grace freely. However, 
Joseph had one last test for them before he can bring them into the plan of God, before he can bring them into the fold, before he can tie them into the greater redemption story. He still has to make sure that these are not brothers that will do something shady as they have done over and over again in the past. And so the next day he sends them all back and he gives them enough food to last for a long time and restores their money again. But he puts a silver cup inside of Benjamin's pack. And he says it's a cup of which he uses for divination, which is not even true because he doesn't even uh, ever use it for that purpose, nor does he even know who has the cup and what's happening. So he just puts this special cup in their pack, essentially. And then he runs out and he sends them away. And then when they're about two, 300 yards off, he sends a servant after them. And the servant runs and he says, hey, one of you guys have stolen. And they go, What? <laughs> never. Why would we do that? Okay. And they end up making this rash vow, which how many times does scripture have to show the stupidity of making rash vows? Okay. Be slow to speak friends is what this is showing because all of a sudden in chapter 44, they say this verse nine, whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. Good job. (laughs) All right. They don't know. Okay. They don't know what's happening, but listen, here's a really important thing. Have you ever seen the Jews this unified before? I mean, ever since Adam and Eve, it's been hostility toward one another. And there's always been conflict amongst the people of God. But now they don't know whether or not one of the brothers has it, but they trust each other so much. They're arm in arm so much that they are literally willing to offer themselves as servants forever if it would be found in one of their sacks. They trust each other. This has never happened in the household of Israel before, but there it is. They keep going. Verse 12. Uh, totally lost my spot. There it is. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and un- ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes. Every man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. Womp, womp, womp. Right? Like, imagine the heartbreak here. They trust each other. They're fighting for each other. They're going through the pack. They're on number 11, the last one. And they're probably kind of fist bumping like this fool, right? And then he pours it out, and here's the cup. And they tear their clothes, and they're utterly devastated. So they go back to the city, and Judah actually then gives the longest speech in all of Genesis. And he's talking to Joseph, and he says, listen, listen, you cannot do this. Please do not do this. Take me as a slave. Don't kill Benjamin, and don't even keep him as a slave, for I promised our father. Remember, the same Judah that didn't really care about the father just a few years prior is now once again offering himself up before Joseph. And then we see this in chapter 44, verse 33. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. The third test is maybe they wouldn't trade Simeon for food, right? Maybe they wouldn't trade Simeon for money, but, but what about the other favorite? Because here's the ironic thing. Jacob was ready to give all of the blessing to Rachel's kids and Rachel's kids alone. The text told us a couple of weeks ago. So if they get rid of the other Rachel kid, Benjamin, then actually all of the father's inheritance lands on them. And so not only does the money and the feed get get landed on them like the first time with Simeon, but now all of the inheritance lands on them if they would just trade him in. But instead of trading him in, Judah would go so far as to offer himself, listen, at his own expense. Because if he saves his brother, that means the inheritance goes back to his brother and not to him or the other brothers. Judah is so connected now to the family of God. He's so willing to sacrifice, to lay down his life for the family of God that he's doing it even at 
at his own expense. And so they do this, and Judah offers himself, and then Joseph is broken, right? He sees that they truly have had a change of heart. They're an utterly different people than the people that sold him into slavery 20 years ago. And we read this in chapter 45, verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said to them, I am your brother Joseph, who you sold into Egypt. I would love if when we get to heaven, we could just like rewind things and watch moments. I would love to see their face at that moment, right? Like what is happening here, you know? Uh, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in these land two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep you alive and for many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord over all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. We've discussed these verses a lot in the past few weeks, God's sovereignty and suffering, how he uses this, but now we get the full story of that, right? Joseph is in this turmoil and he's probably conflicted with so many emotions. And as soon as he says, I'm Joseph, he knows what they're going to think. They're going to think, oh, cuss, right? Something bad's about to happen to us because they know. They sold this man to slavery. And he says, do not be distressed. Do not worry. Don't be concerned. God is the one who did this, that there may be a remnant served. Redemption is happening. God is taking evil and actually using it for good, just as he always does. God is turning this whole thing around for the salvation of many, And so we get the last portion of what Joseph must have been feeling then because all of this has happened. He's back and forth. He sees the brother's change of heart. But now we see the third thing is that Joseph can either respond with retaliation or respond with forgiveness. He still is in the position to do whatever he wants, right? He can say whatever he wants to them, but keep reading in verse 10. Look what he finishes this with. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, And you shall be near to me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will uh, provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. There I will provide for you. Joseph is extending forgiveness to them at this moment. I am going to give to you out of my riches. You can come into the land that Pharaoh gave me, and I will share that land with you. You can come into my plenty, and I will share that plenty with you. Joseph is willing to not just forgive them or to wipe it away, but to even give out of his abundance. Look, with no strings attached. He doesn't call for penitence. He doesn't say, now, if you'll be my servant, it's just like you made me a servant, suckers, Right? He doesn't say, if you do this or, 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 or when you do this, then I will. There's, there's no grudges. There's, there's no retaliation. There's no payback. I mean, friends, come on. Is there a better human picture of the gospel than what is happening right here at this moment? This is the gospel played out amongst brothers, amongst humanity. They sinned against Joseph, and they deserve death. But instead, Joseph uses his own gifts and his own influence to give out of his abundance that they too may receive life. This is the exact same thing that the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. Although we sinned and we deserve death, he has taken out of his abundance and sacrificed himself that we may have life. And all we need to do is accept that gift. 
Because the brothers could have been like, yo, this dude might kill us. I don't know. Let's actually stay over here, right? And never come back. But instead, what we see is they, they go and they get the whole family and they all come back to Egypt. This is clearly what the Lord does with us. So how do we apply this story? What does this look like as an application in our own lives? Well, I think there are several points of applications that we can make, but I want to drill into one here. This story beckons those of us who have been hurt by somebody deeply to offer forgiveness to them. It beckons us to offer forgiveness with no strings attached. Because this is how the Lord Jesus Christ has forgiven us, no strings attached. He doesn't say, you can come into the kingdom of God, you can be a child of God, you can receive the blessing, the gift of the Holy Spirit, eternal life, you can receive all these things if you get baptized and give 10% to the church and serve the poor. And right now, those are things that happen because we have received the gift of salvation. But look, Jesus doesn't require any of that, just as Joseph isn't requiring any of this. And some of us are kind of slow to lend out forgiveness because we actually want retribution. We actually are not willing to offer forgiveness to others around us. This story beckons us. If Joseph can forgive his brothers, who can you not forgive? I know, I know that sinful things have happened. But listen, this is a clear playing out of the gospel. The brothers tasted grace more than anyone else in all of the book of Genesis because Joseph should have killed them and instead he's given them life. He's giving them life and life abundantly. They are feasting in the midst of famine. This is the picture of the gospel and they taste it, right? God has been at work in their hearts and their hearts are going to change even that much more after this. Even more, though, friends, I want us to think about something. I want us to ask ourselves a question in the midst of this text. Will we, as a community and as a church, will we be as unified as these brothers were, the people of God? Remember, these are the people of God. This is the church, if you will, at this time. They believe in God. They're trying to follow him out. And they are totally and completely unified, arm in arm, literally willing to die and sell themselves into slavery for the sake of their brothers. Remember at the start, I mentioned all the cool things that God was doing just in the past two or three weeks, how he's been moving in the church in a lot of ways. I cannot stress enough, I cannot stress this enough. God is up to something in the midst of our body. God has brought in so many different types of people and, and so many types of different gifts and, and so much beauty. There's so much fruit happening in the midst of this. God is doing something. I love, by the way, complete side note, that our two elders were the main ones shaking their head at that. Because as we sit there in these meetings, we're praying and we're listening to God, we see God moving in so many ways. I believe that he wants to use this church to push back the, the, the kingdom of darkness in Austin. I believe that he wants to push back the darkness and bring in the light and see men and women come to know Jesus who formerly did not know Jesus, to see the church built up in love, to be unified, to really create a family. I believe that this is supposed to be a family that is tight-knit, that loves each other intimately and well and is willing to sacrifice for each other, to give out of our overflow so that others who have not may have as well. In fact, Jonathan Edwards lived through three different uh, revivals. And a revival is when a lot of people come into the Lord kind of all at once for no apparent reason. And in his lifetime, he got to see three of them. And he wrote a book on it. And what he said was the main thing that actually stopped revivals was division and dissension happening within the local congregations. 
This is the main thing that made all three of those revivals kind of stop and hit a halt. James chapter 4 talks about the dangers of this as well. The importance of being unified together as one family cannot be stressed enough. The importance of deferring or laying down our lives for the sake of others. Because there's what the interesting thing is with Joseph that he could not have seen, nor the brothers could have realized. Remember I said to hold on to that verse about the Egyptians not wanting to eat with the Jews for it was an abomination to them. Well, here's what the brothers couldn't have seen. Years after that death, another Pharaoh rose up. And the other Pharaoh did not know Joseph, nor his brothers, nor his family. And we actually see that for 400 years, the Jews were placed in slavery to the Egyptians. In fact, if you flip over just to the next book in Exodus chapter 1, it opens up with that very phrase. Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. It says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land, and they get enslaved. Now, could you imagine if Joseph did not offer forgiveness to his brothers at this point? Would they have been ready to face the trouble that Egypt was about to place onto them? There would have still been dissension. There would have still been disunity. Or could you imagine if the brothers were not unified, they were still shady, trying to kind of deal their own hand and and get their own benefit, then they would not have been unified, ready to face all of the hardships that was going to come through the Egyptian hands just a few years later. Friends, this is crucial. Are y'all tracking with me? Does that make sense? That correlation there? The unity prepared them to face the suffering of Egypt. And we don't know what the future holds, just as they didn't know what the future holds. But unity is what actually will keep it together, whether it is good and plenty as it was for the brothers. They rejoice the rest of their time, or whether it is famine and darkness, and you're fighting against the darkness that's around us. God in his sovereignty allowed all of this turmoil in the family to happen at that moment to create this intense unity that would get them through so that they may be the people of God that one day would be freed under the hand of the Egyptian uh, uh, rulers and enemies to go into the promised land. We too have no idea what evil may lie before us, but unity is huge. It's so necessary to make sacrifices for the sake of community and for the sake of others, to offer forgiveness where it's not even deserved, to extend grace to one another just as we have been extended grace by God, to fight for one another, to lay down our lives for one another. Because as we push back against the darkness that is in Austin, a greater enemy than Egypt is before us. And Satan would want nothing more than to create such dissension where the movement of God gets stifled. And he does that in two ways in scripture. He makes sin come up in the midst of leaders, and then he creates disharmony in the midst of the body and completely completely separates, right, the people, the household of God, creates dissension in the body. This is the quickest way to end the movement of God. And so will we be a people who are humble? who offer forgiveness, who lay down our lives for each other? Or we be people who do not gossip about each other, but rather speak highly of one another, encourage one another both to our face and behind our backs? Will we be a people who do not quarrel or fight, but rather we fight for each other? When one person is suffering, we gather around them and lift them up. When one person is hurting, we heal their wounds. When one person is victorious, we rejoice with one another. Because here's the deal, friends. We already talked about how Joseph is a picture of the gospel, But think about the brothers and think about the picture of the gospel that they are. 
See, most of us know the first part of the gospel, that we were sinners separated from God and that Jesus Christ came down, died on a cross. If we believe in him, our vertical relationship with God will be restored. But remember a few months ago in Genesis chapter 3, it was not just our vertical relationship that was broken, but our horizontal relationship with one another was also broken. Adam and Eve, they start blaming each other and they start uh, kind of shunning each other. But at the gospel of Jesus Christ, he does not just restore this vertical harmony, but he also restores this horizontal harmony where no longer do we have to be Adam and Eve blaming each other and at odds with each other, but we can actually lay down our lives for the sake of others. We can build one another up. We can be of one faith and one hope and one baptism, right? In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, if you turn here, it's the last verse we'll look at today. It says this, verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances that we might, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and he might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus' death does not just give us the forgiveness that we need with God and the unity that we need with God, but it actually gives us the forgiveness that we need with each other and the unity that we need with each other. It actually gives us the ability to be one again as God had originally intended it. Could you be, imagine being a part of a body who truly did this, who like loved one another no matter what, where you can be you with all of your brokenness and people won't be like, ah, right, I won't judge you or gossip, but they will actually surround you and bless you and cover you and honor you and lift you up and build you up and encourage you and press you on to know Jesus. Like this is what we want, right? Like a family, a true family that helps us know Christ in these beautiful ways. The, Jesus said that the world will know that we are his disciples by the way that we love one another. He said the greatest commandment is to love God and to love others. It's a vertical and a horizontal, right? This is the gospel where we are reconnected with God and we are reconnected with one another and we all have the Holy Spirit where we can be unified in this beautiful, beautiful way. The kingdom of God advances where there is great unity. Look at the book of Acts. There is unity and darkness was being pressed back so aggressively. In fact, when people are struggling in their faith, why do you think community is always the first thing that goes? All right? When the elders get together and do like a, a health check of our body, we used to look at all these different measurements. Like, are they reading the word? Are they in prayer? Are they in community groups? Are they, are they taking communion? Do we see them raising their hand in worship? Like we're trying to figure out like, how can you tell spiritual vitality, right? How can you tell if someone's healthy? And then we realized that you just need to ask one question. Are they in community? And if that answer is yes, then they are either extremely healthy or it won't be long before they begin to become healthy. But if the answer is no, then it is not long before the spiral starts and in about six months you see them no longer, right? This is so important. This is what Satan tries to divide in the midst of this. He was trying to divide it in the brothers. And the brothers, by receiving grace, by believing in God, by deferring, by laying down, they created unity. We too, friends, can create unity. This is important as we try to push back the darkness that is around us. Joseph and really God prepared their brothers. And so I think that God has sovereignly placed this text before us today. Like, let us be unified. We are exiting a season of hardship and entering into what it seems like God is doing a lot of really cool things in the midst of the church. Are we going to be unified? 
Are we going to fight for one another? Like, don't you want to be a part of a family that looks like that? Don't you want to be a part of a family that even though your past mistakes may creep up, they forgive you anyway? Don't you want to be a part of a family that would fight for you, that would lay down their lives? This is what we have a chance to do. Man, let's, let's go, right? Let's go. This is what God has designed his body to be. And I pray that we would be about that here at the well. We will love each other well. I love you guys. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. God, for being the the greater brother who saw all of the dissension and all of the disunity amongst your people and you offered yourself, just like Judah did, so that there can be unity and harmony in the household of God. God, we saw it in the early church. There's this disunity and harmony that was already happening. Satan tried to jump in and divide the church. And God, I pray that in your grace, that in your mercy, you would allow that to not be true with us. That we would be a people who love each other, that fight for each other, that lift each other up, that encourage each other, that unify together. That we would look a lot more like the brothers in chapter 45 of Genesis and the brothers in chapter 37 in Genesis. That we would not be looking out for our own interests, but for the interests of others. That we would point each other to you, that we would spur one another on, sometimes bringing conviction, sometimes bringing challenges, sometimes bringing mercy, sometimes offering forgiveness, that we would love each other. God, and that through that love, we would encourage each other to go out and to press back this darkness in the world. That we would press back the darkness and bring in the light of the kingdom of God, that we would love our family, that we would love then our coworkers and our neighbors and all the people around us, that they too may see how beautiful it is to be in the household of God. God, I pray you would make this a beautiful church, that we would be a reflection of your bride. Help us, God. We need that. We are sinful. We will sin against each other. Help us to forgive and help us to be unified. We pray this in your beautiful name. Amen.